Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who joined my alma mater, New York Institute of Technology, as the Assistant Athletic Director for Strategic Communications last February. Prior to that, he served as a New York Mets beat reporter for ESPN, which included frequent appearances on SportsCenter, as well as hosting a baseball show on ESPN 98.7 Radio here in New York. He also worked for the New York Daily News and Birmingham, Alabama News, and is an active voter for the National League Baseball. Hall of Fame and Museum in Cooperstown. He basically has covered every year of David Wright's career, including last night's final game. It's always a thrill to welcome Adam Rubin to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Adam. Hey, it was good seeing you yesterday. It was great seeing you. I, I, I kind of missed you, you know, sitting in that front row with your computer and, and emailing Elias and tweeting out. Yes, that's usually the view I had. But uh, before we talk about David Wright, let's talk about your new position at Tech. Currently, your role is essentially the SID, promoting the Old Westbury School's Division One baseball program and a dozen other sports competing in Division Two. You've been very successful so far, including getting the startup lacrosse team on the front page of the New York Times sports section. You've also spearheaded upgrades of the game streaming and game programs and landed a New York Tech game on the game of the week on Optima Cable here in Nassau and Suffolk. Uh, to what extent do you think your journalism experience has prepared you to immediately be successful in that new role? And what's been your biggest challenge thus far? Well, I appreciate it. Uh, a lot of the skills for being a reporter covering the mess for the Daily News and ESPN translate to what the job has become. Uh, in an athletic department, it used to be that you used to pitch stories to Newsday and you used to pitch stories to New York Times and News 12 and other TV stations. Uh, but now, whether it's a professional team like the Mets or a college, whether it's a huge college like Duke or Notre Dame or it's a smaller college like New York Tech, we basically create our own content and reach our audience by ourselves with our website and social media and stuff like that. So uh, a lot of the skills are the same. It's obviously a, a more positive tone when I'm writing about New York uh, Institute of Technology Athletics than I was sometimes when things weren't going well with the Mets. Uh, but it's a lot of the same skills. And then secondarily, though, yeah, if we get on the radio and, and on News 12 and the Newsday, it, it helps. So having connections, having worked alongside those guys uh, definitely definitely helps. I mean, you still have to have the the good stories to promote, but uh, once you have those stories, uh, having the connections to get the stories in the paper uh, always helps. Having been there myself a number of years ago when I left journalism, started doing government public relations, how hard was the transition in terms of viewing things, and how do you now view your former colleagues and how they go about their job? Well, you know, I was sitting in the press box yesterday <laughs> watching David Wright's game, and they're all scurrying to write down every note and, and tie, uh, tweet nonstop. I, I tweeted a little bit yesterday, but it was just relaxing to, to actually just watch the baseball game without having to feel the pressure of churning out stories and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, journalism tremendously changed from the time I first started covering the Mets uh, full-time in uh, 2002 or 2003 and, until, obviously, a couple of years ago when I stepped away. Uh, when I first started, I was at the Daily News, and either you had it in the newspaper or you didn't have it in the newspaper, and if you didn't have it in the newspaper, you had 24 hours to come back and do better the next day. Obviously, now it's every second of every day. So, like, literally, I needed detox from my phone uh, when, I, when I stepped away from that job to, to take the job at, at New York Institute of Technology. Uh, literally, I was still picking up my phone every second of the day, looking at it and looking at Twitter and stuff like that. And 
not that I, I can ignore emails and stuff like that, but don't need to be on it every second of every day because the, the thing about uh, toward the end covering the Mets was if you broke a story, you tweeted out the link, and everyone else caught up a minute later, the flip side was that if John Heyman or Ken Rosenthal or a beat writer has something good, you could catch up a minute later to get it confirmed. That means you have to be looking at your phone every second of every day to make sure you saw what everyone else was reporting so you can catch up. So it got to be uh, kind of a, a exhausting job. <laughs> so how, how sad does it make you look like it makes me when you see what's happened, staff cuts, especially at papers like the Daily News? Yeah, I mean, the Daily News, when I worked there, we had 30-plus sports writers, just yeah. just sports writers in the department. That doesn't count the people on the desk putting out the paper. That was physically reporters in the field covering sports. Uh, we had a Daily News reunion a few weeks ago. There were 60 or 70 Daily News sports alumni there. There's literally now only five sports writers at the Daily News. Uh, frequently, they run just associated press content. They don't even staff games, which is yeah. especially that, road that games. Really it, 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 yeah. It's, it's sad. We see what's happening in journalism. And that was, I mean, we talked about reasons why I left the business. And, uh, I mean, Twitter and social media and having to work nonstop because of the social media aspect of it was, was one factor. But another factor, too, is that there's fewer and fewer places to work. You see what happened since I departed ESPN with the ESPN uh, baseball coverage. Both the guys I work with who covered the Yankees are no longer there, Wally Matthews and Andrew Marchand. Uh, Jason Stark, they, they let go. They're scaling back their, their baseball coverage. And uh, there's just not, uh, we talked about what happened with the Daily News. There's just fewer and fewer employers. So I didn't want to be five or 10 years from now, uh, kind of, because I had other opportunities and, and, and offers in the business, but I didn't want it to be five or 10 years from now, uh, me be in my 50s and be looking for a job and there'd be no more jobs in that industry because, I mean, just like Blockbuster went away, uh, yeah. the, the print newspapers at least aren't going to be here forever. Which is interesting you say that, and it's interesting the way you talked about the way Twitter has evolved and how writers are constantly on their phone and have to break stories. This year when the Met season seemed to be going in the tank and just to try and do something a little different on social media, we kind of took, you know, when they were, you know, at a certain point we took teams that we thought the Mets would have a shot at, bad Met teams that they, we yeah. thought they'd have a shot at of catching, and, and, they, and they eventually tur- did. they turned it around. They turned it around, and they ended up being the best yeah. at it, but each day I would post a story from one of those teams, and you showed up quite a bit, and, yeah. and 1966 <laughs> articles showed up quite a bit, yeah. and in reading those accounts, the way the, first of all, the space the newspaper gave to those game stories was a lot more even, than they even give now. Even like the Daily News, right. which had shorter stories. Uh, yeah. And just the, the style and, and depth of the game reporting was so much more detailed. So it's interesting that you brought that up about the, the reporters yeah. every second at a game. Tweet, I mean, they're exhausted by the time they go into the locker room to get the post-game quotes and to well, put the you know, story together. Talking sports journalism, take a look. The biggest sea change is the New York Times which basically doesn't cover any games anymore. Everything in the New York Times, even the midweek, not just the Sunday section, the midweek is geared towards features, unusual things, cover stories, basically, that have nothing to do with games. And I think that's because people watch games. You've got all the, everybody sees on their phone, things like that. And it's changed sports journalism, not just the tweeting everything. It's changed the whole way newspapers at least approach what they do, which gets you to what happened. Last, well, last night. night. Let, let's talk about um, yeah, your, your baseball head coach's former teammate, and that's David Wright. Um, you know, we mentioned you covered his entire career. What do you remember about your very first impression of him the first time you met him? You know, I, I did a lot of stuff even back then on minor leaguers, so I got to know him even before he got to the, the major leagues. And he always, 
I've, I've said this on Twitter a few times in the last couple of weeks, and people, because I, I didn't perhaps do the ending on it the way I should have, people uh, inferred things they shouldn't, but I kept saying that he's a better person than he is a player, and mm. all and and he's he was an awesome player, which I left off on Twitter, and people some people jumped on me for saying, oh, that kind of compliment. Nothing nothing like that at all. He he is maybe the best person I ever covered in baseball. Uh, Twenty years covering baseball, fifteen years covering the uh, the Mets, uh, and he was that way from a young age. You know, even early in his career, he was the one who was the face of the franchise who would always have to face the questions he would always be at his locker. I remember there were periods of time where they actually, not that they put him off limits, but when he didn't have a factor in the game, they actually said, Let's, please don't speak to him tonight, because he would speak after every game as the voice of the team, and it was, it was weighing on him during those tough years. I mean, I covered one stretch where they had met that six straight losing seasons, and uh, that kind of stuff uh, really weared on him, the, the losing and stuff like that. But he just, I mean, he, it's funny because he's so genuine. It's almost It almost seems like it's like uh, like forced or not real because it's it's so sappy sometimes. But like yesterday in the post game press conference, and then again at his locker afterward, we had a chance to really talk to him. He was uh, he was talking about all these people came, they stayed for 13 innings or whatever it was, and they stayed just for him to hear me speak. I, he said I should, they were thanking me. I, he said I should be thanking them. He's like he's so lucky to have played for them and from some people you say oh yeah whatever he's just saying that but for him it's so genuine and as, as we could talk about all the, the barehanded catch in san diego and flying into the stands in seattle and catching the ball that same year i think it was 2005 but but for, for me just just how genuine a person he was is uh, is what i remember you know, it's interesting you mentioned the way he spoke at his locker yesterday, but I'll take it a step further. My son works for the New York Mets. He, he works in, in the graphics department, and, and it, you know, it was part of putting that show together, all the video tributes. After he went to the SNY booth and the radio booth, he made a point to stop in that department and thank every single guy and take a picture while he's in uniform with the entire department and literally shook all their hands and thanked them each individually. So, you know, you know, he walks the walk. Is what Adam just said is 100. It seems sappy, but it's real. And, and that's who he is as a person. You know, I mentioned the fact that he joined Keith in the SNY booth. And Keith said David had what it took to be a player on the 86 team, which is interesting because maybe the biggest influence on David throughout his career was Howard Johnson, who was the third baseman with the Ray Knight on that team. What did you see of the relationship of Hojo and David early on in his career, and what impact did that have? Well, just, just as a quick aside, before we go into that, uh, the, the second part of what Keith said apparently he was like, I was in the press box, so I, I, I didn't hear it live, but David brought it up a couple times. Partly joking, partly joking, but partly like, wow. Keith said you'd bat seventh on that team, and he was waiting for Keith to smile. And Keith never smiled. Right. <laughs> he was serious. Right. David would be on that team, could play on the team, which was a compliment, but he would bat seventh. But I mean, as for Hojo, I, I still remember that David used to refer to him when he first got called up to the majors as his baseball father. I forgot how many levels, but Hojo was coming up in yeah. the Mets minor league system as, as a coach and manager. Uh, when David was in the minors also, and they, they were together at multiple levels. And uh, Hojo really, I mean, I don't say adopted him because he has wonderful parents in Virginia, but, but Hojo, he called him his, his baseball father early on. I still remember the story I wrote uh, the day that David made his, or the day after David made his major league, major league debut against the Expos. 
and Hojo had left a voicemail message for him that he got when he landed it at, at LaGuardia Airport that said, go up there and break all my records, I guess third base records. Because, uh, you know, the Mets had been since Hojo, like a revolving door at third base until David got there. It was, it was some crazy statistic where they had, had like more third basemen in a short period of time than, than any team in the majors. And, uh, I mean, I don't think Hojo was there yesterday. I know he's a little bit bitter about how things ended several years ago as the, the hitting coach. Uh, yeah, he so, was on a plane. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think Hojo was there. No, yesterday. he wasn't. I saw him tweet something yeah. that he wished he'd be more involved with the Mets or, or they, they really haven't had the olive branch. So I hope Jay Horowitz in his new role as uh, uh, alumni relations smooths that out. But, but to answer your question, that David referred to him as his baseball father in the early years in the majors, and, and they had a really special relationship. It's also interesting that David's best years, you know, statistically, come under Willie Randolph, who really doesn't get the proper credit I think is due as you know as a Met manager, as he's the second highest winning percentage of any Mets manager. Willie was also on the staff of Team USA, where David earned his nickname of Captain America, and, and Willie was also you know Willie was quiet, but Willie had a, a dignity to him that I think David also has. What role do you think Willie played on, on David's career as well? Well, certainly, David made his debut, I want to say 2004, right? And, and Willie, Under I mean, 2004, yeah, a year later, Willie right. comes in. And I still remember uh, late in that 2005 season, the Mets had been above 500, but then really went into a tailspin in early September and faded from whatever race they were in at the, at the time, the wild card race or whatever it was. And they're in St. Louis, and they, they get beat there. And really, it's kind of the height of the tailspin. And uh, the hotel in St. Louis is like two blocks or a block right across the street from from Bush Stadium, and they're walking back to the hotel together. And I still remember the story all these years later, 13 years later, uh, and Willie says, uh, just remember this moment. You're going to really, really someday, like, this. you just suck this in because cause when you have the highs, remembering moments like this is, is what's, what you're going to remember. And sure enough, uh, I mean, a year later, they're within a, a game. Obviously, the Cardinals are the ones who, who beat them that game seven in, in 2006. But and sure enough, uh, a year later, they're they're – the, the beast of the, the East, at least. Uh, David hates when I tell the story, but that 2005 year late, I mean, the Mets are kicking the ball around in Atlanta. I guess that's the, that's the last year of the Atlanta reign of like 14 straight division titles, not all the NL East, but the 14 straight division titles. And David, because he wears every loss on him, like some, play, some players, it's more of a business and they leave at the end of the game, whatever. David, every loss, you could see it wear on him. Uh, and, and like I still remember late in that year in Atlanta, the Mets kicked around the ball, and he's, he's, he watches how fundamentally sound the Braves play. And he's, he goes, like, enunciating every syllable. There's a reason they do it every single year. And I still remember, because David rarely in front of the media got very pointed and stuff like that. Uh, but, but I could see how much it wore on him that, that they kind of faded from the race and they weren't winning. Uh, but, but Willie... Uh, had that conversation with him in St. Louis, and I, I still, obviously, the, the, some of the best years that David had, that was the prime of his career, too, but some of the best years were the Willie Randolph years. It's also interesting, you know, when you look for angles, and last night was a, a perfect example when, when you, you talk about it. In that Marlins dugout is Don Mattingly. You look at the two men, and it's so eerie that both of them played 14 years. Their 162-game average is eerily similar. Don Mattingly, you know, was uh, his 162-game average, 20 home runs, 100 RBIs, 307 average. Davids was 25 home runs, 99 RBIs, 296 average. Both corner infielders, both gold glovers, both multiple all-star appearances, both beloved, both both careers cut short by injuries. 
what do you, you know, you take a look at it and you see how beloved Don Manningly was and how beloved David Wright was, yet they're two different personalities. What do you see the similarities personality-wise between the two, if any? Oh, boy. Well, you know, one of the bad things about covering a New York baseball team is you don't generally get to drift to the other clubhouses as much as you like. Right. So I, I, while I've, I've heard Don Manley speak from time to time, I haven't been around him to know personality-wise exactly what it is, although I hear he's a very nice guy. Uh, but, I mean, the, the arc of their careers are, are very, very similar. They were the faces of the franchise. I mean, uh, obviously Don Mattingly was a, a little bit uh, earlier generation, but you think about when you think about the Yankees of that era, you think about Don Mattingly and, and Willie Randolph. That was kind of the era when I was growing up, and those are the two players that you idolize on the Yankees in that era. And uh, for the Mets era was David Wright and, and Jose Reyes to a slightly lesser extent, but certainly that uh, duo. And, and you brought up a lot of similarities statistics-wise. I still remember when David was first diagnosed with this back problem we all went to I, I don't know if we were in LA at the time but but Don Manley was with the Dodgers at that point certainly the first opportunity we had we talked to Don Manley about it because his career was derailed at basically the same age by the same or very similar back issue so uh, there are a lot of parallels between the two of them it was just weird a lot of people there yesterday I mean the same Marlins dugout was Brian Schneider who played in that game uh, for the Expos, I didn't particularly remember it, but people reminded me that he actually, I think, caught, caught the, his uh, first f- caught his foul, foul pop, right. first out yep. or something like yep. that. So, yeah. which, which brings up, if you want to talk about it at some point, the crazy thing with the Marlins first base yep. yesterday. Yeah, Peter O'Brien <laughs> but, became uh, Chase Utley and Jimmy Qualls all wrapped into one last night for sure. Uh, yeah, that was a little crazy. But the other reason I brought up Manningly is the one thing that you always heard about Don Manningly that he was always the last guy to leave, always taking extra rap, reps in the batting cage and always taking extra infield. It's the same exact thing you heard from David Wright. I, I'm just wondering how much of all that extra time they put in, you know, swinging the bat, which puts tremendous torque on your back. If they had bad backs to begin with, you know, how much that might have contributed to both their demise? Well, I mean, David is such an exceedingly hard worker. Talking yeah. about stories that he hates me telling or he's sick of me telling after all these years. But when he was in St. Lucie, David, uh, in A-ball, uh, he literally had, and this is not an exaggeration, a 100-point higher batting average at one point on the road than at home. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. They finally deduced that he was getting to the St. Lucie home stadium for 7 o'clock games. He was getting there at, like, noon because he's such a hard worker and just taking a million cuts in the cage. And he was worn down by game time, which is why he had such a lower average at home than on the road. But... I mean, David's toughness was, was one of the reasons why uh, he, he had his career shortened by this back issue. If you remember, yes, with, with spinal stenosis, it's a narrowing of the spine. So you, it, 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 it's partly genetic where you're predisposed to it. Or someone, I don't know why I can't speak tonight. <laughs> you have a tendency to get it. There you go. <laughs> you're predisposed to having it because you, some, uh, you have a narrower spinal column. But if you remember David, as tough as he is when he was younger, uh, he dove, I want to say he dove into third base and literally fractured his back. And it's not that he didn't tell anyone, but he didn't even want to get an MRI or x-rays out of it uh, for like a month. So he played through it for like a month while, uh, while playing with a, a fractured back. And that, caused, that, that injury caused his uh, calcium deposits in that already narrow spinal column and, and certainly contributed to... Uh, later in his career, the issues that he had, and I think I saw him say someplace that if he had one regret, it, right. was, it was that that he he didn't cut short playing and, and get that treated then because that extra month playing with that fractured back is something that 
really set him up for the problems he had later in his career. As a fan, what was your favorite moment of last night? You know, everyone everyone says the the daughter throwing out the the first pitch, and that was really really cute. But just for for me, the emotional power was when he touched his heart and was waving at the fans and stuff like that. Because as going back to what we said earlier, uh, with him, anyone might do it in that situation. But with him, it's it's legitimately genuine. He's, I mean, he's he's literally is. People know from me covering the Mets. I, I when when there's critical things, I say there's critical things, but. He's literally my favorite person to have covered in baseball because he's the he's the nicest guy in the world, and stuff like that is just so genuine for him. Adam, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's very strange, you know, to follow you on Twitter because you tweet about my high school, General Douglas <laughs> MacArthur. You covered my favorite baseball team, and now you work for my college. It's a little, it's a and little. My college as well now, yeah. yeah and Ryan cool. and Ryan's college as well. So. Um, I am surely going to make an effort to support my college roots and come back to watch some Bears sports for sure. So, uh, you know, I am now keeping in, in contact and, and checking out the nyitbears.com website. So just wanted to thank you so much for tonight. It was great seeing you last night back in the press box as well. Awesome. Well, baseball team did drop to D2 now, but Frank Catalanado, the former major leaguer, is now the manager. He uh, had his first fall game uh, on Saturday, the same day as David Wright. I went to that game first. Uh, but obviously the spring is the big thing for baseball, so hopefully we'll see you out there for a game. Absolutely. No question about it. I will definitely well, be right? there. All right. Okay, great. You got care, it, Adam. Thanks. Adam Rubin, New York Institute of Technology, the Assistant Athletic Director for Strategic Communications, as well as the longtime Met beat writer.